Thank you, Upton. Uh, you know, I forget things that I did on occasion. And once I, when I was younger than him, I took a cure and moved from the East Coast to Southern California, and things did not get better. Uh, so I decided that I needed to move to Southern New Mexico. And I moved uh, with a group of people to a rundown cabin in Cloudcroft, New Mexico, and we damn near froze to death that winter. We could struggle through the snow to a place called the Red Dog Saloon and drink uh, Thunderbird wine. <laughs> anyway, thank you for being here. Uh, and I, you know, I just saw someone here that I didn't even know was in town, and Upton was talking about the people that have made a difference. And Stan and Mary Kay, right there, there they are. Okay, thank you for being here. Stan taught me that I could take out the trash at a barbecue one time. I didn't know I could do that. <laughs> it was Founders Day. We had a big deal, and Stan, I guess, was in charge. I don't know. But anyway, he taught me how to take out the trash, and I'll be eternally grateful. <laughs> and I'm going to read one more thing here. It says on page 24, the fact is that most alcoholics, this is really important for me to know, for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. This is it. We are without defense against the first drink. I am so grateful for those words. Uh, anyway, Valerie told me I was to uh, sort of share a little bit about what happened to me, too, and I hope it's a little bit uh, like it needs to be. Uh, you know, I like to say in my story that you guys sent for me. I didn't just show up in AA one day. You guys came and got me. Well, not you exactly, but you sent people. You sent the fire department. You sent the police. You sent the ambulance. And, you know, I, I created such a disturbance that night that uh, when I came out of all that fog and blackout and all that stuff, it, I was thoroughly convinced that alcohol would not work for me anymore. And I didn't know what it was you guys were doing, because they were coming to the institution I was in, which uh, they were coming to bring the meeting, you guys were, and I... They came every two or three times a week, and the same guys came, and I thought, well, you know, that would be a good job when I get out of here, because uh, the job I had, I probably, I sort of knew wasn't going to be anymore. So I thought, well, now that would be a good job for me to do, is take a meeting into a, an institution. And this is one where we did not have doorknobs on my side of the door. But anyway, I finally heard one of them say, well, you know, I worked real hard today, and blah, 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 and all that. I said, well, what did you do all day? I thought that was his job. And he explained to me, no, this is just a way for me to keep sober, is to bring the meeting over here where you are and other people like you. And uh, I, I couldn't understand somebody wanting to give up their valuable time. I mean, how could they watch TV if they were over here at this meeting three or four nights a week? Uh, but slowly but surely, I caught on that 
That's the way we do it here. That's the way you taught me how to do it, is to pass this thing on to someone else. Uh, anyway, I have not found it necessary to take a drink, and I had to sort of figure out a day. It was all a few days of a blur in there, and I finally settled on April 23rd, 1987. And I'm really grateful that you guys have been here every day for me since then. I used to go to a meeting when I was real new. We only had one lunchtime meeting in the town I was in at that time. And I was, I didn't want to talk to you. I wanted to be there, but I didn't want you to talk to me. I didn't want to talk to you. So I'd read the newspaper. And we would sit at tables like this. It was at a club. And, you know, I wouldn't spread the table out. I would hold, I mean, spread the paper out and hold it up like this. And finally, one crusty guy told me, and well, I don't say what he said, but he said, uh, please don't do that anymore. And amazingly, I never did. And he's no longer, he's died since then, but he was a good friend of mine after that. And, you know, but my behavior was inappropriate, and someone had to tell me that. I didn't know it was inappropriate. And a lot of things I did, I thought was okay. No one ever told me, or maybe you did, and I just didn't pay any attention. But he felt it his responsibility to show me and teach me what was acceptable and what was not. And I always will appreciate that, too. And Stan, that was old Phil. He's dropped dead in his backyard one day. Phil, I uh, can't remember his last name, but a good friend of mine. But... Uh, you guys have always been here, and I have been, uh, you know, after I learned how to take out the trash at the barbecue, uh, people volunteered me for a lot of stuff. A fellow named Crawford Poe, I was going to this Sunday night big book study meeting, and there's like three or four of us, a half a dozen with a big crowd, and he said, well, it's time to have elections. And he said, Claude's going to be the secretary, and this one's going to, John's going to be the treasurer, and you're going to be important to me, you're going to be the GSR. That was our election. <laughs> well, see, I've never been to one, so I thought that's the way it happened. <laughs> Member Crawford King. <laughs> and anyway, I said, well, I don't know what this GSR is. That's when I first heard it. He said, I'll let you know. <laughs> and he did that. He did that, and I sort of went on from there, and I won't go into any great details. But it's been a wonderful journey. I'll always appreciate the start that I got from Stan and Crawford, the people in my hometown. But anyway, you guys came and got me. I was over in Augusta, Georgia. So you even found me way over there. No one else knew where I was, but you found me. I had business over there, so even if I'd have been up on top of things, I could have left where I live and drove to Augusta and taken care of business that morning and had lunch and came on back home. Well, it took right at ten months before I got back to my home. <laughs> but I, I'm, today I'm grateful for all the activities that took place during that ten months and the months since then, and the days and hours. And it's been a real great journey. Now, you know, I go to, in, where I live, we have book studies just like you do where you live, but uh, a couple of few years ago, this guy calls me his sponsor, uh, 
decided we needed to get together and read the book. And I thought that was a good idea, that he suggested that. I had done that before, and it went right over his head. So he suggested that we get together on a Tuesday night, just the two of us. Well, someone else heard about it, but, you know, we tell things. I'd like to come, and I'd like to come. So anyway, we, and this one fellow who had come to Greenville from South Dakota said, well, in South Dakota, we had a big book study, and it went this way. He had a sort of a couple of pages of how they did it. So we started doing that about, I don't know how long, Larry, four or five years ago, three or four, something like that. And we go through the book, and, well, we've sort of, we don't call ourselves a group nor a meeting because we had certain things we wanted to do. And if it was an open AA meeting or even an AA meeting, we didn't feel like we could do that. One thing, we keep it limited to just men. That keeps a lot of distractions away from my, my group anyway. But anyway, we limit it to men, and we start with the book, and we expect you to be there every Tuesday night. We go from 7.30 to 9. We read the book. We do not uh, read what's between the lines. We read the lines. We talk about what we've read. If we read one word, you want to discuss it, we stop. Some days we might go, some nights we might go through a half a page or a page, several pages. Sometimes we might go through one paragraph, one sentence. Uh, but I have come to learn that the book tells me exactly how the first 100 recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I am, uh, again, grateful that uh, people continue to do that. So, Anyway, if you're in Greenville on a Tuesday night, we meet at the Unity Church on East Hillcrest Drive. And even though it's not an AA meeting, we talk about the book. We'd like to have you. Anyway, there's one more thing here. It says, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. Now, this was pointed out to me that, you know, most people would know which direction to take, me as an alcoholic had to wait a while, had to think about it. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. Again, most people that I've ever had any contact with before or since know that spiritual help would be good and they'll take that. I had to think about it a right long time before I did that. Anyway, our next speaker. Roy R., and I think his name tag says today, South Africa. Hi. My name is Roy, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm sober today through the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. My home group is the Riyadh group in Saudi Arabia. Um, our group membership is about 10 people, so I'm not actually accustomed to seeing so many people. <laughs> just like to say that I got sober in South Africa, Durban, on the 6th of November, 1995. My friends back in Saudi Arabia tell me that the A program that I talk and that I believe in is all bit old-fashioned, but I like it that way. <laughs> Um, I'd like to thank the 
General Service Board and the Convention Committee for giving me this privilege to come and share with you. My purpose in coming here was actually to learn and sharing with you is actually a bonus for me because I really want to learn. Um, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I discovered that I suffered from a disease which is physical, mental and spiritual. Today I want to talk about my spiritual disease. It doesn't mean that I wasn't mentally and physically affected as well. But my spiritual disease and the solution that was offered to me was a spiritual solution. And I had a great deal of difficulty with that. Because when I arrived here, it was coming full circle for me. I had to go back to the spiritual state that I was at the age of six years old. Because you see, I come from an alcoholic home as well. And when I was at the age of six years old, I witnessed for the first time my father suffered an alcoholic fit. And I thought he was dying. And while my mother was busy helping him, I went to my room and I prayed to God and asked God, please let him live. And he lived. And I believed in God. And as the years passed, my faith in God grew. And I decided at one stage, on my own free will, that I wanted to become a priest. But with the onset of adolescence, I always knew that I was different from other people. I knew that I was different in a way that wasn't good. I wasn't sure why, but I just knew it. And with the onset of adolescence, I wanted to be like the other people. I thought they were having more fun than I was, that they were enjoying life more than I was, and I wanted to be like them. And I became suspicious of my family, our priests, my teachers, and I was especially suspicious of God because I thought that somehow I had been tricked into making this decision where I was going to sacrifice my life and I wasn't going to get any enjoyment out of it. And I tried to distance myself as far as possible from anything spiritual and especially from religion and God because I knew that if I tried this again they'd probably get me and then I would become a priest. Coming from the home I did, I've always had a desire to be, to overcompensate what I believed was an inferior home. So I wanted to be a success. And I developed a philosophy that if I practiced my willpower and my discipline, I could be a success. And willpower and discipline were extremely, extremely important to me. And as time went on, I achieved success. Whatever I did, I tried my best. And as time went on, I became very proud. I became very arrogant. And I started to believe that I had no need for God in my life. And I would study books and I would read literature to prove to myself and to other people that God did not exist. As far as alcohol is concerned, I come from a very long line of alcoholics. And I was aware of the dangers of alcohol. So when I started to drink, I drank very cautiously. But as time went on, I became confident because I knew that I was strong. I was different. I would be the one exception. At the age of 24, I was at the height of my success. I landed myself one of the greatest jobs that I can imagine for a guy like myself. I just graduated from university. I'd just been married, I bought myself a car, and I had a beautiful home, 
and I was having my birthday party and I invited all my friends to come and celebrate my success. And there came an unexpected guest. My mother wasn't the sort of person to come to a function where a lot of alcohol was being served. And in a break in the proceedings, she called me aside and she gave me my birthday present. And I opened it and it was a big book alcoholic on it. You can imagine the shock. <laughs> and the anger because I wasn't like my father. I wasn't like my grandfather. I was different. I would be the one exception. And she begged me, please read the book because she could see the signs. And she'd lived with the alcoholic all her life and she could see the signs. And she told me, look, you're going to be worse than your father. And I said, no, I'm far too intelligent for that. <laughs> it actually surprised me, surprised a lot of people, the pace at which my alcohol progressed. The only way I can describe it is galloping alcoholism. Because over the next two years, I made several attempts to stop drinking to control my drinking. My wife got pregnant and I wanted to be a good father. Of all things, I wanted to be a good father. And I tried for my daughter. I thought, now I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to become responsible and I'm going to control drinking. The thought of stopping drinking didn't really come to me because I always felt that I could eventually get control of it. And I would invent excuses for my drinking and for my actions while drunk. But my behavior started to become insane and people started to recognize it. At one stage, I was asked to go and see a psychiatrist because things weren't going too well with me. And I saw this lady and she asked me, do you drink? And I answered, occasionally. The answer should have been on every possible occasion. That was my first and last session with her. <laughs> By my actions, I isolated myself from my family and my friends. I suffered a great deal of shame, a lot of guilt, and a lot of remorse. And some of the things I did went against everything I had been taught, my conscience. It became increasingly difficult for me just to stay sober because I was so disgusted with myself. During the course of 1995, in the space of six months, I was defeated, I was baffled, I was confused. My father would oftentimes come to my rescue when I'd gotten myself into some serious trouble. And he died. I think that in the same month, I got a divorce, I smashed my car, I lost my home. I was reduced to living with my friends who drank and I thought they drank as much as I did and I thought one or two of them had a problem. But they would tell me, you know, Rory, you're making our lives unmanageable, think it's time you moved. <laughs> I 
At about this time, there was a, a bar that I would go to on a regular basis, and I was on very good terms with the bartender. And even today, we still, I would still consider him my friend. And he'd start telling me, because I would share with him about the difficulty I was experiencing and how life had been so cruel to me. And he started telling me about this young man who used to visit the pub quite regularly, who would stop drinking and gone to a place, and he said he'd think it was Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not too sure, but thinks it's Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy is really doing very well now. I said, yes, that's great. You must pass my encouragement on to this picture. <laughs> and then in one of the periods in which I was moving from one place to another, I came across the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And by now I knew that I was powerless of alcohol. I had tried and I was, I felt hopeless. I knew my life was unmanageable. So I decided that I was going to give Alcoholics Anonymous a try. And the price for me, the admission into Alcoholics Anonymous was humility. And for a person like myself, with intelligence, was utter humiliation. I had to be humiliated first before I could walk into Alcoholics Anonymous. And the solution that was offered to me was a spiritual solution. I had a choice. Either I accept spiritual assistance or keep on trying on my own. And I think the only thing that I brought with me to Alcoholics Anonymous with a little bit of willingness. And it wasn't willingness that came out of myself, it was willingness that came out of circumstances in which I found myself as a result of drinking alcohol. And I thank God every day that I fell into the two hands of two men who believed and practiced the principles of faith and action. Because for me, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a lot of stuff in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But for me, it boils down to two things, faith and action. And when I walked in, I was very confused. And these two guys tried to make it as simple as possible for me. They said to me, Rory, look, we're going to give you four habits. And if you follow these four habits diligently, we promise you, you'll stay sober long enough to get involved in the 12 steps with Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first habit they gave me was the meeting habit. They asked me to go to as many meetings as possible. And in my first year in Alcoholics Anonymous, together with these two guys, they were a tag team with either one or the other or both of them. We went to more than 330, 350 meetings, I don't know. And the reason I had to go to those meetings was to drum home the three pertinent ideas. That A, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved the alcoholism and see that God could and would if he were sought. And over the course of that year, I listened to people I identified that smashed home the idea that I was an alcoholic. I could not drink like Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones. And I also learned how other people had managed to establish a relationship with the God of their understanding, who had solved their problem. The big book promises us that. The purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself who will solve your problem. Now when it came to God, I had a particular problem because I believe myself to be an atheist. And with all my studying, 
of religious matters, I was very confused. But they made it very simple for me. They said, you are free to choose your own conception of God. And I couldn't argue with that. God as I understand him. And for the person who inserted that part in the big book, as we understand him, I'll always be grateful. But these guys are pretty strict. They said, your daily routine is, every day you ask God to keep you sober for that day. At the end of the day, you thank him for keeping you sober. And during the course of the day, when you're confused and you're scared, because most of the time in the beginning, I was to ask God for some guidance and direction. And I did that. The third habit was the transparency habit. That I was to be honest with myself about the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I was to be honest about my motives, about where I wanted to go to and why I wanted to do certain things. And especially I had to be honest with them. Because the people of Alcoholics Anonymous could not help me if I wasn't honest with them. I had to tell them what was happening inside of me, how I was feeling, whether I wanted to have a drink or not. I had to tell them what was happening outside of me, whether I had a place to stay, how I was financially. And then the most important habit that I believe today was a service habit. That I was to try and be helpful in all aspects of my life. And in the beginning, they considered it too much of a risk to put me anywhere near a newcomer. <laughs> so I would go out with them on 12-step calls, and I would just sit and listen. Because I was a young person, they take me to meetings with other young people just to get the physical identification. I wasn't allowed to speak. But fortunately, the fog started to clear and I was introduced to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the best description that I have come across for the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is contained in the forward of the 12 by 12. And I'd like to read it to you because I always get it wrong. Let's see if I can find it. Dr. Paul O, who died recently, I heard a cassette of these and he says, if I stop for no reason, um, just check amongst yourselves till I start again. So, let me just find this quote. Well, it goes along the lines of AA's 12 steps as a group of spiritual. Sorry? Group of spiritual principles. If you've lived as a way of life, will expel the obsession to drink and lead the sufferer to lead a life that is happily and usefully whole. And that for me is my aim in life, to be happily and usefully whole. And the way the 12 steps were presented to me was very simple because for an intelligent person like myself, they needed to simplify things. And they basically boiled it down to three things. Step 1 to 3, trust God. Step 4 to 11, clean house. And step 12, help others. And over the last few years, I've been given the opportunity to be able to spend time with new people and to be able to try and help the still-suffering alcoholic. And that, to me, is something that I need to keep my faith alive. 
because watching the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, watching the miracle of sobriety take place in other people's lives, confirms to me my trust in God and my trust in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what of my fear that leading a spiritual life, coming to believe in a power greater than myself, who I call God today, would leave nothing left for me, where there'd be nothing for me to do. Well, I have submitted my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. And within the guidelines set out and the directions given to me by Alcoholics Anonymous, and within the dictates of my own conscience, I am free to lead a life that is happy, that is enjoyable, and that is most importantly useful. I'd like to thank you again for allowing me the privilege of actually coming out to share with you. And in honor of my mother who died when I was nine months older, for this wonderful gift that she gave me, I'd like to just read something from the big book, which has already been read before. I'd like to read it again. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Thank you very much and God bless.